Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Baltimore Jack, I went out for a ride and I never went back because I got busy listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friend Bruce Springsteen for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. It's the only wicked good podcast out there. It is the People's Podcast and is the major league of professional wrestling podcasts. This is it. This is the final Stick to Wrestling of 2020. It's coming out on Christmas Day. I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. And if you don't celebrate Christmas, I hope you've had a great holiday season. Those of you who are younger, you're going to be stuck not partying on New Year's Eve. I'm sorry, but it's one year. You got to do it. I know I would be going crazy if I were in my teens, 20s, 30s. But like I said, be safe out there, everyone. I said I was going to do this about once a month, and I've stuck to it. I'm going to ask for donations to stick to wrestling. No amount of money is too small. Even a 5 or a $10, hey, thanks, John, means a lot to me. My PayPal address is prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. I have the perfect amount if you're confused. Oh, how much should I send? This is episode 133, so if you sent $13.30, that's $0.10 an episode, I'm not working for free, except I usually am. But anyway, follow me on Twitter, just put in the name, search the name John McAdam and follow the guys who has guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. If you have not already, you want to join the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group, I keep overwhelming you with reasons to join this group because we have pictures we have conversation we have results etc we are now doing the 1984 fantasy crockett cup tournament but wait there's more starting january 2020 every wednesday night we're going to have a wednesday night watch along where i'm going to upload something i don't know youtube daily motion whatever and we're all going to watch it together at 8 o'clock at night. And it's going to be reasonably short. Like, we've had them before. Like, we've watched uh, the 1986 Great American Bash. And that's like two and a half hours. So we're kind of taking up your whole night. This is going to be like 40 or 50 minutes of rare, fun, classic wrestling stuff that I have laying around. Ah, that's all I have to go over. And now, today, I have a very special guest He's someone that has been on in short segments in the past. I've been asked, you've got to have this guy on as a regular guest and as a, a Christmas present, as a final episode of 2020, I want to introduce my producer, Lou Kippelman. Lou, thank you for coming on. Ho, ho, ho. Good to be here, man. I am just, uh, uh, I worked up a sweat. I just had to put the Festivus pole away and it's a... It's a rough thing. A Festivus poll. Tell me about this. Oh, are you not? Are you not a uh, an educated person? Not, no, no. But are you not? <laughs> I, I I apologize for casting such aspersions, but uh, it's it's a, a little famous uh, thing from Seinfeld. It was uh, Frank Costanza, George Costanza's father came up with his own holiday after being disgruntled with the commercialization and and the, the greed of Christmas and shopping. 
he came up with a Festivus for the rest of us. Uh, That happened every December 23rd, where he would bring out a simple, unadorned aluminum pole instead of a tree. They would have Festivus dinner, and they would take turns around the table airing the airing of the grievances. They each person would say how everybody else disappointed them over the past year. <laughs> and then it ended up with the feats of strength, which essentially every year would be George wrestling his father. And Festivus would not officially end until George uh, put Jerry Stiller down for the one, two, three. I've heard about every element about this particular episode, but I've never seen the the ep- episode when uh I'm trying to think of his name uh the, the outfielder Cespedes. Uh-huh. We, we had t-shirts around here that said Cespedes for the rest of us. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, we're 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 downright comical out here, but anyway, <laughs> this is I love doing this show. This time another reason to join the Facebook group. We take questions from the people on the Facebook group, the people who listen to the show, and this show is going to be nothing but questions, and we're going to go longer than 60 minutes, a little Christmas present for you. So here we go. Dan Pott asks, do you think WrestleMania three would have been as big a deal in a different venue? Have you ever heard of any other venue rumored for it? Lou, what do you got? Well... I'm going to say that uh, I I did some homework off of Dan's question just to see what uh, what was the state of the number of dome stadiums in the U.S. in 1987. So you had, besides the Pontiac Silverdome, you also had the Astrodome in Houston, which was, of course, smack dab in the middle of uh, Paul Bosch's territory. In uh-huh. 1987, once a year that Paul Bosch finally you know, uh, broke off uh, the booking of Bill Watts and joined up with Vince McMahon for a very short-lived sort of retirement. Yeah, I think he has retirement show in August or September 87. Yeah, that's right. You also had the Kingdom up in Seattle, which was a, yeah, a rather nondescript warehouse bunker-like setting. You had... The Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome in Minneapolis, where the very famous Wrestle Rock Rumble occurred in early 86. A stadium that Sean McDonough called a ridiculous miniature golf course of a baseball stadium, but go ahead. Exactly. Uh, you know, festooned over the top with trash bags. And <laughs> so, in looking at the, I got this off Wikipedia, so caveat emptor, but Pontiac Silverdome uh, capacity I saw was 82,000. And, of course, WrestleMania three had 78,000. Of course, Andre the Giantized up to 93,000. Oh, yeah. The Astrodome had about capacity for about 68,000. Uh, the Kingdom, 66,000. Then you go down Metrodome, 64,000. And then uh, the Hoosier Dome, later known as the RCA Dome in Indianapolis, at capacity of a little over 60,000. So those were like kind of the big metropolitan areas that had dome stadiums. And then like the next one down from that, I saw was the Carrier Dome at Syracuse. Yeah, what a dump. <laughs> 56,000. So, I mean, if you're talking a big metropolis, metropoli, let's say. Yeah. You had your choices of, 
Yeah, the Detroit area, which even though the territories were uh, had a faint, faint pulse at that point in 87, it was still, you know, Detroit was uh, dead and buried for close to seven years from the Sheik's run. Yes. The Astrodome, Bosch uh, still doing his thing. Seattle, that was kind of a satellite for Don Owen from Portland. So... Plus, it's too close to the ocean, in my opinion. Like, you, you want a centralized location, I think, where a lot of people exactly. can come from every direction. Yeah, exactly. And I was just saying, I was saying to you about the the promotions in those areas, and also, was it a centralized location in the continental U.S.? So, that, that would leave the Metrodome, which, uh, even with... Uh, Fern uh, Ganya in that promotion's weakened state by 87. He was still on ESPN. And then you had Indianapolis, home of uh, Bruiser Bedlam. <laughs> but I, I can only imagine uh, Dick the Bruiser trying to decap Vince <laughs> for running in the Hoosier Dome in 1987. <laughs> had they done it in an outdoor setting, you had, you know, all these big collegiate football stadiums all over the country. Right. So... I was thinking, you know, like the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, where, of course, the uh, Tolis Blassie blow-off happened in front of, like, I want to say 25,000 people or so in 1971 for the LaBelle promotion. So, uh, that yeah, that had a capacity of about 93,000. If Vince wanted to go back there after the the split venue at the sports arena for WrestleMania two. It was a possibility. And then you had, because uh, the top collegiate stadiums here in terms of capacity, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, Penn State Stadium, Ohio State Stadium, all over 100,000. But, of course, the WWF was not going to have WrestleMania in an open-air cold season until the, you know, just recently at the Meadowlands. So, you know, I think uh, uh, keeping all these things in mind and, you, you know, also regionally, he could have gone to, say, the Florida area because Eddie Graham was long gone by then, although uh, CWF was on its last legs. Yeah. Could have gone there, could have gone to Dallas, the Cotton Bowl, the L.A. Coliseum or the Rose Bowl out in Southern California. Uh, those all... You know, I think would have been fairly acceptable. But my thinking of it, bottom line, that it was going to be a spectacle no matter where it was, because you had the really well-built-up main event of Hogan versus Andre. So my personal feeling is you could have put it in a bowling alley, <laughs> and it would have been great. And then by that point, the Silver Dome was 12 years old. So it hadn't been really showing his age yet. No. But that was as good a venue as any, I think. I think it was, I mean, hindsight being twenty twenty, it was the best call because not only was Detroit a hot city for WWF wrestling, it has that huge metropolitan area. I think it was like number five in the country at the time. But Detroit is a reasonable drive from, you know, as far as I know, from Chicago, from, you know, a bunch of Midwest cities. And I'm sure that's where a lot of the crowd came from. You know, WrestleMania three happened, 
when I just first started getting the newsletters, and I mean like I I mean like we're talking maybe eight weeks, and Dave Meltzer was reporting that, you know, he thought there was no way they were going to be able to sell that thing out, that it was going to look sparse in there. And then, you know, we all make incorrect predictions, uh, and that was clearly an incorrect prediction. Dave thought there was going to be, you know, no more than 40,000, which is still impressive, but in the Silver Dome, it would have looked empty. And, you know, he came back and he was like, you know, I was wrong. This thing is sold out. And... <laughs> I mean, what what an amazing accomplishment by the WWF and building up that that dream match of Hulk Hogan uh, against the newly turned Andre the Giant, who's being managed by Bobby Heenan. Absolutely, and it just came to mind that the WWF, when they were beginning their national rollout, passed you know buying out LaBelle in '83, and then I want to say somewhere around '84, near the early beginning there. I want to say they went into business with George Cannon. At least that's where they acquired the superstars of wrestling name. Yes. And I'm thinking back to Tim Hornbaker's Death of the Territories book, another great book from a prolific author. And yeah, that they really kind of hit the ground running in Detroit to begin with. If they were, you know, kind of sluggish, you know, rolling out to other places, uh, competing with Vern in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And places like that. So I guess, you know, logically, in a way, that would make sense. Detroit was, you know, make good business on the house shows. You could get the people down from Toronto and Maple Leaf Wrestling and, you know, have a pretty good central concentration of fans. Yeah, Toronto was actually a very hot city at the time. So was, so was Chicago. And Detroit, like I said, was really hot. That's the thing. When the WWF expanded nationally... They did well in some places and poorly in others. Like, you know, usually if there was an established promotion the, and the WWF came in, they did not do well. I know they did poorly in Atlanta, Charlotte, New Orleans, Dallas. I don't think they did well in, in Minneapolis. But places that were, I don't want to say starved for wrestling, but didn't have major wrestling for a long time, like Los Angeles, Phoenix, and then, you know, Detroit, Chicago, Toronto, I mean, he they came out like in 84, 85, all doing well already. Right. All right. Greg Klein, I still want to know what you think happens if Dusty does not become Mid-Atlantic Booker in 1984. Is Crockett better off, or does Watts or Florida or someone else become the challenger to McMahon? Please weigh in on this for us. So my first thought was, I don't know... When exactly Jim Crockett and Dusty Rhodes came to an agreement that Dusty would wind up his uh, business in Florida and come in and book full time? Uh, spring, spring, summer 84. Okay. So, I mean, I, I was just thinking that if Dusty wasn't offered the booking job, would Starcade 84 have happened? For that matter, would Starcade 83 have, you know, taken place the way it did with Dusty's input? But uh, as far as uh, the booking job, by the time Dusty came in in mid-84, it was obvious that Dory Funk Jr.'s booking uh, left a lot to be desired. Yes. Uh, So I think Dory Funk would have been out regardless. But would Jim Crockett have shifted to, let's say, one of the guys who helped Dory Funk in booking the Mid-Atlantic Territory? And those uh, names that come to mind are Gary Hart. Ernie Ladd, 
and Wahoo McDaniel. You had, you know, Gary Hart's track record was uh, pretty well illustrated uh, from his time in Texas. Ernie Vlad was at at that point, I'm trying to think of the timeline when, where Ernie Ladd was before he came into Mid-Atlantic in early 84. Uh, Ernie Ladd had taken most of 1983 off. I know he was having yeah. some serious knee problems. Um, I think he left Mid-South in 82. And I, I think, like I said, I think he took most of the year of 83 off. Then he came to Mid-Atlantic uh, beginning of 84 and then went over to Watts, I want to say right around fall. And that was that was his last run. That's right. So I think by mid-84, I think Ernie Ladd, to quote his own colorful uh, metaphors, had taken enough time to wring out his brain like a sponge (laughs) and could, you know, prospectively could have put his own imprint on Mid-Atlantic with their talent and perhaps uh, maybe cycled in some people from, say, Mid-South or Georgia. Uh, Wahoo McDaniel at that point had just come in after a run in the AWA. And, of course, this is where, you know, it began his uh, heel run. Yes. The awesome twosome with Tully Blanchard. So, I don't know. I know Wahoo later on, in the later 80s, he co-booked the AWA with Ray Stevens. And Wahoo having a legacy, being in the Mid-Atlantic area, being booked by George Scott starting around 73, 74 was always a strong worker there. So I wonder if he he would have accumulated that sort of trust with Jim Crockett to be able to book there. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's hard to say. And, and, you know, looking back, I mean, Dusty had been the the booker in Florida. He had points in the promotion. I mean, it's in a way, it's really surprising that Crockett was able to lure Dusty away. Um, because, you know, Dusty had such a run in Florida, but again, looking back, I think Dusty doing what he did was incredibly smart because I think his time had come and gone in Florida. He had been the top babyface since uh, 74, 75. And, you know, after a while, no matter what, there's only so much you can do. So he comes into the territory, Mid-Atlantic already established as a top superstar, but he never had a full-time run there. Well, now he's there full-time, and, you know, Dusty gets a lot of heat for Mm -hmm. his later booking, which was, you know, 87 was a disaster, 88 was a disaster, but 84 and 85, he did an unbelievable job, and I really give him credit because he almost, you know, tore down that entire territory and built it up, and he took a lot of chances and he just kept coming up with, you know, new talent. I mean, I never thought Tully Blanchard had the upside that Dusty showed mm-hmm. us that he had. Uh, Buddy Landell, Arn Anderson, same thing. You know, he yeah, he got rid of a lot of the guys that had been there for a long, long time. And he just rebuilt the promotion up. You know, Flair was there. And that's just about it as far as like the... The guys that were established, I mean, Ricky Steamboat took <laughs> off. He didn't want to work for Dusty. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't know, like, what would happen if he didn't become the booker. I don't know what that alternative universe is, like, who gets picked. But, you know, looking back, I mean, he was absolutely the right choice. It's just that Crockett didn't get rid of him quickly enough. No matter what, 
Right. No matter how good a booker you are, you have a shelf life in this business. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I have here in my notes, I think that kind of the uh, the the twin poles here, Dusty's vision and his hubris uh, as a booker, I think were just uh, really integral parts of how Jim Crockett promotions burst upon the national landscape. Yeah. So had Dusty not come into the picture, I think, I think Jim Crockett would have continued to cycle through bookers. Perhaps other names I thought of would be like Johnny Weaver, who, you know, did booking with George Scott in Toronto. And of course had been in, in and around mid Atlantic for uh, a couple of millennia. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, could, uh, around the time of Black Saturday, could Jim Crockett have persuaded Ole to not start up championship wrestling from Georgia, but instead come into Mid-Atlantic and uh, start anew there? But in any case, I think Mid-Atlantic would have remained a sort of regional powerhouse, and then, like the rest of the regional powerhouse territories, would have just sort of slowly decline to the mm. point where I think maybe perhaps they could have lasted as long as Don Owens territory did or Memphis. Yeah, I am inclined to agree with you. I mean, you know, using Florida as an example, it was like Florida, it was too big to be small and it was too small to be big after the, the war broke out. When Eddie Graham died, I mean, you know, Mike Graham was saying, oh, you know, Eddie could have created a new Dusty Rhodes. He was that imaginative, but I, I don't buy that. I think when when yeah. Dusty left and when Hulk Hogan started popping up on TV, I mean, the end was near for Florida. Uh, that's for sure. All right. Lester Lemke wants to know, what did Vern do wrong, Vern Gagne? He had, at one point, Heenan, Mean Gene, Hogan, and the Warriors, Road Warriors, to name a few, never at the same time, but I get what he's saying. He must have seen something with these people, but never took them or the promotion to the next level. Was he doing his own booking? Was he happy doing his territory? Do you think Greg helped or hurt the AWA behind the scenes? Lou, what do you think? <laughs> On my own notes, yeah. the first thing I put down, father time does no jobs. <laughs> and I think there's no better example of that than Vern's uh, roster. At that point in 84, you had guys like The Crusher, Mad Dog Vachon, occasionally Dick the Bruiser in Chicago, Baron Von Raschke, Blackjack Lanza, Billy Robinson. And these guys, good hands, all of them, but were they credible as top stars by that point when career-wise they were kind of past their sell-by dates? I, I really don't think so. I think Dave Meltzer was particularly critical of the AWA at that time when they uh, came into San Francisco after Roy Shire folded. And, you know, he said that he thought the AWA didn't reach that level of success that Shire did for 15 years or so, mainly because you had guys like 55-year-old Mad Dog Vachon going in there and kicking ass, and the people in the Bay Area were perhaps not buying it. Also, and then you had guys who were kind of just past their prime, kind of lost a step. I'm thinking Ken Patera, Mr. Saido, guys who, even if they hadn't lost a step, they weren't a complete package. I'm thinking Jesse Ventura. And then you had guys 
Vern loved, like Brad Rangans, which, you know, naturally, I don't think that was going to, uh, <laughs> wasn't going to translate well. And then as far as managers, besides Bobby Heenan, you had Adnan Al-Casey, who came in really strong in 1980 as a foreign menace and a heel. But by this time, he was just, you know, I think his act had probably worn thin, and he was the ranting and raving foreign menace, and certainly not as good as Bobby Heenan. You know, besides the rest of the roster, you got, of course, Nick Bockwinkle, who was an evergreen, great talent. And then you had Kurt Hennig, who was really, I think, more dynamic than Vern, I think, Vern or Greg or whoever could see, because you didn't see Kurt coming into full bloom until he, you know, became Mr. Perfect. So I think he was kind of handcuffed by sort of the, uh, uh, the old stereotypes and molds of the, you know, first the white meat baby face and then the dastardly heel that Vern had. Um, as far as tag teams, the high flyers were, were good for what they were. I think Greg Gagne was kind of underrated, but Greg, you know, I think rightly got ridiculed, especially when he became Rambo. Huh. The Road Warriors, they were pushed to the top as a tag team in the AWA. But even then, even when they came in, they were a touring attraction. You could see them going into Mid-South, you know, going back to Georgia, going into Mid-Atlantic. Uh, so they weren't like AWA exclusive. Yeah. And then as far as expansion, they, by that time in the 80s, AWA had been in San Francisco for a few years. They had run in Denver since the early 60s. And then in 1969, uh, Jack Kent Cook brought them in to kind of go against the LaBelle's. But that was uh, had a very short lifespan. So I think Vern always had his eye on expanding past the upper Midwest, but he didn't necessarily have the wherewithal to sustain that. No, I, I agree with you. Even before Vince expanded nationally, it became a national game. It, it felt like the game had kind of passed Vern on. And if you want an example of this, they had hyped up a big match Christmas night in Minneapolis, St. Paul, whichever one. Nick Bocklinkle defending against Hulk Hogan for the first time in like eight months. And Hogan obviously had quit before that. And instead of bringing out Hulk Hogan, they brought out a 54-year-old Mad Dog Rashawn. And I know Rashawn was a legit badass. I know he was a legit amateur wrestler, a guy you'd never want to mess with even when he was 55. But this is pro wrestling, and that doesn't translate. He's a small, older guy, and it felt like the AWA, even if Vince had never, if everything had remained the same, if it had stayed a territorial system, if, if we didn't have the, the changes in technology that made you know, national expansion a, a natural thing, I think the AWA would, would have eventually at least been significantly weakened. I mean, yeah, they did well when they had Hulk Hogan, but when they lost Hulk Hogan, now all you had was a bunch of old guys, and they just, except for Hogan, like, the whole time I followed the AWA from 76 until, you know, they died, they were never mm -hmm. able to really establish a new star. I guess they kind of did with Stan Hansen, maybe Rick Martell a little bit, but they, they never, you know, they never seemed to 
be able to get out of that that mode of like, okay, Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. Yeah, and you could say Stan Hansen and King Kong Brody were de facto hired hands. You know, Brody being his own uh, sort of uh, best advocate and worst enemy. And at this point, when he came in in 84 and came back in 86, he was sort of a uh, ro- roaming samurai. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who was, you know, prone more likely than not to turn on promoters on a dime. And then, of course, Stan Hansen. Stan Hansen just, I think, considered his AWA run then as a, you know, being subcontracting by uh, Baba yep. out, <laughs> out to Vern. And I think uh, I want to say some money changed hands for that. Same as with uh, the Jumbo Saruta title change. Mm-hmm. So Vern had kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of pimped out the title since, I want to say, 82 with Otto Vons. And then you had Saruta. And then Hansen, and then uh, Hansen uh, chafing at just a spontaneous, seemingly uh, request to drop the title in Denver before he went on his next tour to Japan. And that just really kind of blew up in Vern's face. And of course, when you have uh, Nick Bockwinkle getting crowned the champion, not in the ring for the second time in his career, that was bad news. Yeah. I mean, I, the second time I kind of got the story that, look, Stan Hansen forfeits Nick Bockwinkle is the champion, but it, it still mm-hmm. does not make him look good, especially, again, when Hulk Hogan's on the other channel and Ric Flair's on the channel after that. Yeah, because I'm trying to think of in that latter part of the 80s, did anybody have in the AWA up and coming have even a hint of that type of charisma that Hogan had? And, you know, you had pretty good workers. I mean, you had Kurt Hennig, you had Scott Hall, but the, and then you had later on, I don't know, Derek Dukes. Was it Ricky Rice, John Paul, the top gun? Yes. You had, yeah, Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond coming in, uh, the destruction crew, stuff like that. And it was compared to the WWF's product all around. It was lacking. And that's the thing. Ricky Ricky Rice was a talented guy. Uh, Derek Dukes, I thought, was a really talented guy. I'm surprised he, he didn't go further in the business. But those have to be complementing pieces, especially when they're first starting out. You know, you have to have that those established stars who can get over a guy like Ricky Rice, who can get over a guy like Derek Dukes. You know, kind of the way Terry Funk got everyone over in ECW. It's like, okay, he's the established star. If Stan, Stan, Sandman, thank you, is standing next to him. Sandman's a star. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, Funk getting the younger guys over and then having somebody controlling the book who is able to amplify, you know, the workers' strengths and uh, obfuscate their weaknesses. And Paul was really good at that. I, I have a Paulie dangerously in the AWA story. By the way, by the time oh, Paul yeah. was there, he was by far the best thing about the AWA, and when they just one day they decided to get rid of him and bring in an old timer. I can't even remember his name, like the Big K oh, yeah. or something like that. Stan, Stan Kowalski. Kowalski, the Big K. <laughs> like you're replacing Paulie Dangerously, who was arguably the best manager in the business at that time. But Paulie was absolutely Paulie yeah. was was on TV, and this is Paul's story. Whether or not it's true, I actually kind of believe it. 
And he's like, and we in the original Midnight Express, when we win the AWA Tag Team titles on, on, on this coming Thursday night, I'm going to be celebrating with all of my friends from New Jersey. I'm going to be celebrating with John Bon Jovi and Bruce Springsteen. And <laughs> Vern's there, and Vern's like, cut, 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 stop. And they stop. And he's like, what? He's like, don't talk about your friends on TV. And he's like, no, these... <laughs> He's like, no, these are like big stars from New Jersey. And he's like, well, if you want to talk about big stars from New Jersey, talk about Jerry Vale, and I forget who oh, else. God. <laughs> I know. Yeah, if, if Paul was savvy enough to to drop in like Bobby Vinton and Don Rickles, <laughs> that, that would have gotten over big time with Bird. <laughs> Stan Kowalski wouldn't have replaced him. Yeah, exactly. And I, that takes me back to the, yeah, in 87 when he was doing his danger zones on AWA TV and the one time when he was purportedly on the phone with, with Tommy, Tommy Ranch and that, that was all time classic. I, I remember being like 15 years old and laughing till I was crying because it was just pitch perfect. And so hilarious. I'm not cornbread. I'm a punk. <laughs> <laughs> <It's not> like, <laughs> it was just out there and it was just, it was perfect, and it should have lasted longer with Vern, but alas. As soon as you said Danger Zone, I knew where you were going, but because that was such an unbelievably great segment. I will try yeah. to find that somewhere. AWA TV from 87 is actually kind of hard to find. All right, Lawrence Miles, do you think there was a secret deal between Vince Sr. and Sam Mushnick to get the belt off Buddy Rogers and have him become the first WWF champion. I say this because Thez won it in Toronto in a one-fall match, which was not the standard two out of three falls, which Senior used as a reason to claim Buddy was the champ. Now, I know about this, but I don't know or even can speculate about a deal between Vince Senior and Sam Mushnick, but uh, Lou, you've got something to say about this. Yeah. And it rang some bells with me, and it had me hop on the Kindle and uh, look up uh, another Tim Hornbaker book I have called Capital Revolution, uh, which details the the history of Vince McMahon Sr. and his father, Jess McMahon, going back to the late 19th century in terms of uh, boxing and wrestling promotion, first in the Bronx and then the Northeast in general. And so... For sure, Tim definitely lays out a timeline around this time, and especially around Buddy Rogers' reign in general from 61 to 63 as NWA champion. And essentially, it was when they decided to switch from Pat O'Connor to Buddy Rogers, it was a matter of the NWA really needed a shot in the arm finances-wise because it was under scrutiny by the Department of Justice. And at that point, there was at least another lawsuit by Sonny Myers against the NWA. And so they needed the money. Pat O'Connor was not, I guess, uh, compared to Buddy Rogers, Pat O'Connor was not that that big of a draw. And Buddy Rogers was just kind of his own uh, singular spectacle. So that they went in, Muchnick and McMahon agreed on putting the belt on Rogers and kind of coming with that, the tacit agreement that Buddy Rogers would spend most of his time kind of in the Northeast and in the bigger cities. 
like Chicago, like Detroit, like Houston, and kind of give short shrift to the tank towns, like all the towns, the NWA members where Luthez would go. He would go to just about every member promotion when he was a champion. He'd grumble about it, but he'd go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he might have been a little disgruntled about it, but he understood sort of the the underlying tenets of having uh, a syndicate like the NWA, that you have to at least make a feint at treating every promoter equally. So it looks like things really kind of came apart in the latter part of 62 with Buddy Rogers having his uh, run-in with Bill Miller and Carl Gotch in Columbus. So that messed up his arm. In November of 62, he defended against Killer Kowalski in Montreal, and Buddy Rogers broke his ankle. And, uh, you know, he was out for a little while. And coinciding with that, the end of 62, Capital Wrestling was running into financial problems to the point where uh, Sam Muchnick agreed to give back half of the $10,000 bond that McMahon put up uh, when the belt went on Rogers. So at this point, the, the grumblings from the rank and file of the NWA made it clear that they want to put the belt back on Thez. And at the same time, McMahon knew Thez historically was not a very strong draw in the Northeast. For whatever reason, that is true. Yeah, and so the title switch happened in Toronto in a one-fall match, January 21st, 1963. And yeah, it was a one-fall match, but in a development that McMahon uh, very not-so-coincidentally looked over, uh, there was a rematch in Toronto two weeks later, a best-of-three-falls match. Fez beat uh, Rogers two falls to one. So, you know, you kind of had, in the same way that the NWA would kind of monkey around with title claimants, as they did with Boba Brazil, Leo Namalini, Edward Carpentier, Killer Kowalski, the NWA acknowledged it, and then uh, Vince McMahon had a rationale for not, not recognizing that. Although it wasn't from January until April, May. It was near the end of that, around April, that the WWWF came up as a new governing body. That's why I don't think necessarily it was a a collusion between Muchnick and McMahon to split off the territory, you know, kind of like the the way that Vern did in 1960. Mm -hmm. And then, coincidentally, in the background... McMahon, he also was booking Chicago for Fred Kohler. He was booking Pittsburgh. He was booking Detroit. And then he opened up in early 63 in Cleveland. And Tim Hornbaker thought it was sort of a talent pipeline to, you know, start out a little more Western in Chicago, you know, then to Detroit, to Cleveland, to Pittsburgh, then up to the Northeast. And he came up with a governing body, which, although he didn't necessarily publicize it widely, it was called the Worldwide Wrestling Association. So I think that was kind of the beginning of his idea of a new governing body, and that kind of went away when the WWWF 
came into being right. in April 63. And then in April 63, you had Buddy Rogers having his heart issues, and they had to figure out a way to, you know, get the belt off him pronto. And McMahon decided to give Bruno Sammartino a try. So I think it was just sort of a, a result of circumstances that the WWF kind of came into being. Well, I'll tell you what, you just talked me into into buying that book. There's so many books that I need to read. <laughs> I've got like, you know, 20 unread books, but that one just went to the front of the line. That was That was all very interesting. <laughs> and also as a postscript, the, I guess, the general line of thinking among some wrestling fans is that once the WWF was established, that big man broke off from the NWA. No. That was not the case. At the annual meeting, which McMahon did not attend, the NWA, they gave Capital Wrestling a 60-day probationary period to acknowledge Luthez as the undisputed world champion. And then when that didn't happen, uh, the NWA suspended Vince McMahon and Toots Mont for a year. But there was no formal resignation in 63. It was just that he kind of more vocally came back into the fold in 71. All right. Wow. That was great. Thank you very much for that, Lou. Scott Cornish. And thank you, Tim Hornbaker. Yeah. Like I said, this is, <laughs> it, this is great information. Scott Cornish, and I believe this, is, this could also fall under the non-wrestling umbrella. Lou, what is the most money you've ever spent on something ridiculous, and what was it? Okay. Uh, if we're talking wrestling-related... I'm not a belt mark. Uh, if I had more money, I would be. But it would have been the time around WrestleMania 31 when they were in Santa Clara at Levi Stadium. I bought four tickets to the Hall of Fame ceremony at the Shark Tank in San Jose. So I knew it was kind of a pricey proposition, and it was just going to be me and my wife going. But I figured that I could, you know, try to make a quick buck off StubHub for the other two seats. And, oh, yeah, that did not happen. <laughs> so, What year is this again? It was WrestleMania 31. So that would have been about six, seven years ago, okay, I yeah. think. Yeah. Let me figure this out. It was 2015, okay. so five years ago. So it was a good Hall of Fame ceremony. Love the Bushwhackers. And Medusa Michelli and Larry Zabisco and uh, even Arnold Schwarzenegger at that one. But, uh, yeah, that was just throwing good money after bad. <laughs> but at least it was comfortable to have a cushion of an empty seat beside, on the, either side of us. As far as uh, non-wrestling uh, frivolity, I got to say, uh, just a few hundred bucks I've dropped on guitars and they're up on my wall, and I've forgotten how to play them. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just really, really heavy ornaments at this point. And then with a close second being, I spent a lot of money on, uh, like, throwback baseball apparel. Uh, jerseys and caps. They're all very cool, like wool flannel uh, from great companies, uh, mainly Ebbetsfield flannels up in Seattle and some from Mitchell and Ness in Philadelphia. They're good, but it's like rarely so cold out here that I would put one on and walk around with yeah. it. Yeah. 
So I've got like, I don't know, probably 10, 20, 30 uh, jerseys hanging in my closet. You know, I might as well have gotten an astronaut suit or a uh, fire captain's uh, getup. <laughs> Because it shows, you know, it just as uh, just as much shows my uh, relative mature maturity level to wear those as, you know, those jerseys. Okay, I I feel too old to wear any kind of a sports jersey at this point. It just doesn't work anymore. <laughs> the most money I've spent on something ridiculous was wrestling related. I had every issue of the wrestler and inside wrestling. Since the very beginning of the 70s, except one. It was the one it had. It was August 1977, The Wrestler. And it, on the cover of it, it had Bruno Sammartino, uh, the story of Bruno Sammartino losing the WWF title to superstar Billy Graham. And it was, it was the one I didn't have. It was like my white whale. Well, mm. early, uh, mid-90s, you know, eBay comes along, and I'm looking for this, and I still can't find it. And finally, someone put it up. The starting bid on this was 1999, and I was determined to win it. And I spent over $40 of 1999 money on this magazine. And when I got it, it's like, why do I want this? I'm, I'm like looking through it. There's nothing <laughs> I want to read. Those magazines were, were written, written for children and nitwits, and I was neither one of well, maybe a little bit of a nitwit. But I, I mean, I was like, why did I want this? It's, you know, it has no use for me. And it's about 11 years ago when I moved, turns out for the last time, like I threw out almost all of my old wrestling magazines because A, they were not in really good shape. I, could, I didn't really take care of them. I just had them. <laughs> and so I couldn't really sell them. And I was just tired of moving them. I mean, think about it. Every time I had moved somewhere, since I was in junior high, I'm carrying around these magazines. I just got tired of it. But anyway, that was the most ridiculous non uh, wrestling thing I bought. The most ridiculous money I've spent. Uh, most money I spent on something ridiculous was the last time I played golf. Golf is expensive <laughs> and annoying. I hate that game. And it just dawned on me one day, like, why am I doing this? I'm I'm paying you know a hundred dollars a day to not have a good time. Just like come, you know, come away from there pissed off. So that was like. That also was over 20 years ago. I'm like, I'm not playing golf anymore. Okay. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm still working on getting the ball through the clown's mouth. <laughs> so, thank God I never sank in any serious lettuce into that. I, I used to live walking distance when I lived in North Attleboro, walking distance from a miniature golf place that was also an amusement park. So I played a lot of miniature golf when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Oh, now it was pretty cool. Yes, oh, well, living down cool. the street from an amusement park. I also got good at the bumper cars. But anyway, all right. The, uh, let me see. Hey, Sue Salas Rodriguez asks, what is the most weird or embarrassing moment you've ever encountered with a wrestler or a wrestling personality? Do you have one of these, Lou? Uh, I was digging deep into the memory banks, and I'm I'm just a guy who's kind of relatively shy at heart. So the times where I have come close to wrestlers, I just kind of clam up and uh, become a wallflower. But I can tell you in general, I think my closest encounter with uh, wrestlers and stuff, besides that same WrestleMania 31 weekend where I got got my picture taken with Jim Ross, and I, I thought that was pretty cool. It was, 
I want to say somewhere around 10 years ago or thereabouts, it was a, a fan convention at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. And it is still infamous for how badly it went sideways in every conceivable fashion. And it was put together by some guy who, of course, didn't have the money. It was, yeah, a wrestling fan fest back in 07. So 13 years ago now. Mm -hmm. But he, whoever this guy was, it was his first and last convention, obviously. He was able to get enough workers out there and, you know, probably most famously that uh, Roddy Piper was out there and they had charged an extra premium for people to attend his one-man show in the pit with Piper. But the thing was, by that point, it was, I think, day two of three days that things had gone so spectacularly off the rails that Piper felt obliged to just do his thing for whoever was there. I didn't catch that, but I did see him walking by me. I'm like, wow, that's cool. I think the person I came closest to physically was Larry Zabisco. I was looking over some vendor's table, a guy who had some uh, DVD footage and photos and stuff from the Shire Territory oh, wow. and the LaBelle Territory. And then Zabisco comes up and to nobody in particular, he starts he starts talking about, uh, oh, fucking Shire. Oh, this and that. And people are looking at him and nobody engaged with him. <laughs> and I was, I don't know, I was too shy to uh, directly engage with him. But I, it was notable and it was funny. And for lack of a better term, yeah, it was weird. Though it was not the weirdest thing that happened that weekend. I think the weirdest thing was... MMA fighter Don Fry uh, getting knocked out by the bodyguard of Dog the Bounty Hunter's son at the airport hotel. Okay, I was going to say. Yeah. So this was not a scheduled MMA match. Oh, no. Okay. Oh, no. It was a one-round sucker punch affair from what I heard. Yeah. All right. That, that's a pro Well, if it's a one-round sucker punch, then that's how it goes because I know Fry was a huge deal at as a wrestler at Arizona State, so you're not you're not going to mess with him too easy. Yeah, yeah, and maybe the one good thing is I I attended my first ROH show there. That that might have been the saving grace. Okay. out of that weird ass weekend. Oh man, I went to an ROH show in what year was it? 2002, and it was one of the best shows I'd ever been to. And then the second one just wasn't as good, but the, I that was a good show. Anyway, the most the most weird or embarrassing moment, I told this story like episode four, I want to say, maybe episode five of this, and enough time has gone by where I feel like I can tell it again. It's 1985. I am in Tingsboro, Massachusetts, stopping and getting gas and soda, whatever, with my girlfriend, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere... She starts, like, screaming, fuck you with this guy. And I hear this guy yelling back, oh, fuck you. And she's like, you know, yells back, fuck you. They're, they're both so creative, right? So I look out, and I'm like, you know, why is this guy yelling at my girlfriend? He better knock it off. And I look, and it's Larry Zabisco. <laughs> and, oh. and, you know, he's in the middle of screaming at this girl, and then her boyfriend comes out, and he's like, oh, my God, Larry Zabisco. 
And I just, I just would die to know like what this looked like <laughs> through his eyes. And my girlfriend's like, you know this asshole? I'm like, yeah, that's Larry Zabisco. <laughs> and just everyone. It, oh, my God. At the end, everyone hates me, right? But it turns out. So we go back, and I'm like, you know, what happened here, right? All of a sudden, everyone's screaming at each other out of nowhere. He asked her. He's like, uh, hey, is it pump or pay first? And she didn't hear him. She's like, what? And he's like, pump or pay first? And he's like, fuck you. And then they start yelling at each other. So, <laughs> Oh, God. Out of nowhere, I'm sitting there just getting wow. in my car, and she starts screaming at this guy. <laughs> so that when I told oh the my. story, mm-hmm. this is back when Sean was on the show, and we we love Sean yeah. to death, but Sean just, just totally sandbagged the story. He's like, hey, tell the Larry Zabisco story. It's like, well, he kind of just gave it away. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, well, that's that's kind of historic. I, th- I think you could make a legitimate claim that you dated the first spudhead. <laughs> Probably a long time before her. Oh, man. Dawn was, mm. was something else. I hope she's alive and well. I'd settle for alive. Anyway. <laughs> uh, Jesus gets in another question. Uh, uh, Lou, I'm not sure you're going to get one, one of these. What's the best card you ever attended in the state of New Hampshire? Lou, what's the best card you ever attended in the state of California? Oh, in the state of California. That, oh, boy. Because I've, you know, I've, I'm fortunate enough to uh, get some good NWA, WCW cards. Nice. Uh, WWF cards. I was in attendance at the Cow Palace when New Japan came out here. Ooh. And that was that was pretty spectacular. Uh, so I say either that or the second ROH show I attended, which would have been WrestleMania 31 weekend. ROH ran in this sort of gym facility in Redwood City, California, uh, which is a suburb about a 20 minutes outside of San Francisco. And altogether, it, it was good and entertaining. The main event was Samoa Joe up against Jay Briscoe for the ROH title. And that was hard hitting, as you would expect, and really entertaining. Kyle O'Reilly and Bobby Fish were there wrestling Mike Bennett and Matt Taven, and that was fun, too. Jushin Liger wrestled Jade Lethal, uh, I think, for the ROH TV title, and that was awesome to see Jushin Liger in the in the flesh. Yes. So, I mean, it was a pretty stacked card and a lot of fun. So, I, I'd go with the ROH card. All right. Now, State of New Hampshire takes away most of my shows because, I mean, we went, we would go to the shows in Boston. Uh, there was no, at the time, there was no major arena in New Hampshire. There is a major mm-hmm. arena now in Manchester. I would say the best one, I'll tell you, I'll give you the best one and I'll give you the most fun one. The best one was probably, it was September 10th, 1984 at the old uh, Manchester Ice Arena, whatever it is, and mm-hmm. like in the worst part of Manchester. But it had Hulk Hogan against Jesse the Body Ventura as the main event. And mm-hmm. you know, just getting Hulk Hogan in Manchester was a big deal. But looking back, I mean, Jesse Ventura obviously became a very big name. So I got to see these guys in a tiny little ice arena in a, in a small city. So that was kind of cool. And the Freebirds were there, too. Oh, that is cool. Right. Uh, and I mean, I know it's not in New Hampshire, but uh, do you have a particular favorite card uh, at the Jack Witchies 
in uh what's it north attleboro oh man uh i don't know i i would say my favorite was the first one believe it or not i only went there like four times oh okay. yeah I, I was forbidden to go by my parents so i only, I only went four times um mm-hmm. <laughs> my probably my favorite <laughs> show was either the first one because it's my first wrestling show i get to see chief day strongbow but my second one uh, and I think this is the last one. It was in 1979, April 79. And we went and it was, it was, uh, they had advertised Steve Travis against a big surprise, right? <laughs> now, this isn't okay. what drew me to the car. And I was just able to go. So I went. And that in, in and of itself is a long story. We'll do that some other time. Uh, but Steve Travis and the big surprise turned out to be Frank the Gypsy Rodriguez, who was just, you know, a, a, t- a guy on TV who never won, who'd been around forever, and <laughs> welcome to the wrestling business, right? Yes. <laughs> welcome to, yeah, cards and surprises uh, subject to change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And or a huge disappointment. <laughs> Another favorite was in 81, they ran, uh, the WWF ran an absolutely awful show but it was at, and I, I actually wouldn't have gone to this except like everyone from my school went because it was at the Bishop Girton gym, which was the rival high school of Nashua High. And <laughs> probably about a hundred derelicts from Nashua High show up, you know, the football team, the hockey team, the baseball team, whatever. And the whole uh-huh. show, we were just chanting, BG sucks, BG sucks. So we couldn't oh just God. do that at like one of their high school basketball games you have nice. to show up and ruin the wrestling show oh and that does remind me briefly at my high school in suburban uh, marin county california north of san francisco the wwf ran a spot show in my high school's gym uh, redwood high school back in 87 i think okay. and they actually got some fairly top line talent to get in there the main event was uh, Jim Duggan against Ted DiBiase, and it was absolutely nothing like any of their classic Houston brawls. Oh, I can believe that. It was kind of a, it, it was kind of lame. The screw DQ finish in, uh, involving Virgil, but then you also had the Bushwhackers against the Bolsheviks, and then like and, and then they had talent who. I don't think we're even kind of in the Bay Area or anything. You would expect somebody at that point, like Alexia Smirnoff or Lordy, uh, Jerry Monty or guys like that on the undercard. They brought in Bulldog Bob Brown <laughs> and uh, to go against Coco Samoa. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> How they, <laughs> why? Because I knew a little bit about Bulldog Bob Brown from. Uh, seeing him on like pro wrestling this week and seeing the very underwhelming uh, footage from central states. But I'm like, that's kind of friggin' random. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. But no, that was not the best, but it was notable and it was right in my backyard. Oh, man. And it was WWF. So who could have expected that? The only explanation I can think of. I mean, why would they fly out? I mean, I know Brown was living in or around Kansas City at this time. I know it. Mm-hmm. So maybe he just had to be there for some reason, and the WWF let him wrestle on the card so he could write the trip off? Because guys used to do I that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, perhaps, or maybe he was 
I don't know. Maybe it was a period of time he might have been up. I because I know he was spent a good time out up in uh, Vancouver. So I was like, did he come down there? Was Coco Samoa like work in Portland at that time? I can't recall exactly, but just really random. That that's that's kind of weird. Wow. All right. Uh, <laughs> Connor McGrath writes. Connor likes this promotion. What's your favorite memory? of IWCCW. <laughs> I don't have much to add to this, though I did, like my freshman year in college, on the TV, University of California at Santa Cruz, their rinky-dink sort of cable setup, I was able to tune in very faintly Channel America, where IWCCW would air, as well as uh, South Atlantic Pro Wrestling. I remember Channel America. Yeah, yeah. And so I didn't have the privilege of watching one of the 2000 airings of Atlas Steamboat, Vic, <laughs> but I did get to see their adorable character, Curly Moe. Oh, dear. It was a guy, you know, kind of, why would you take a guy and make him sort of a comedic uh, kitty character and... He had echoes of, like, the lame great value stooges who came after Curly. So, like, not even Shemp, but, like, Curly Joe Dorita and Mama Joe Besser. So, <laughs> all together, it was just so rinky-dink. I want to say I saw, like, a Curly Mo promo, him talking, you know, you kids stay away from drugs, all that crap. But I'm like, wow, this is... Your use of the uh, the world class uh, theme song and opening, and uh, and they and, and they're giving us this. I'm like, that is crazy. Okay, I I you know like they were on right after NWA Worldwide on Channel 25, and I would watch it most weeks. I would you know put that extra hour in because I would always watch the Worldwide show, and that came on right after. They did an angle where I think it was Tony Rumble, who, oh, damn, he was in every angle, and he wound up cutting mm-hmm. Victor Steamboat's hair, right? And Victor Steamboat okay. sits down and does an interview about this, and I'm, I, I'm barely exaggerating here, people. V- Victor Steamboat's like, you know, I, I really liked my hair, and I-, I worked hard, it took a long time for me to grow my hair out, and I, I-, I liked it. <laughs> and I- I'm not kidding! <laughs> He's like, and... and this guy comes along and he cuts it, and I didn't come. I didn't start wrestling to get my hair cut by someone else. I, I did it for competition, and I'm just like, I can't believe I'm seeing this. It was incredible. This guy had no idea how to be a babyface. Yeah. Oh my god. If personal issues draw money, I <laughs> I want to say that was maybe a gumball out of the gumball machine <laughs> worth of personal issues. That boy. Oh boy. Uh, if you listen to John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now, a few weeks ago, they went back to an edition from 1990 where Tony Rumble called in and then they had a so-called unscheduled run-in from Vic Steamboat. And it was like Vic Steamboat trying to, uh, you know, show some baby face fire over the phone <laughs> and, you know, try to be, oh, it was so, so lame. It really, that, uh, whatever charisma and personality in the Blood family, it all went to Rick. And oh, you none took of it that to right Victor. out of my mouth. 
I was just about to say that there was a lot of talent in the Steamboat family, and Ricky had all of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, but I mean, he just emphasized that he really liked his hair. It was it was insane. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's nothing to to curry the the favor of fans to get behind a baby face than to uh, you know talk about his to talk about his quaff. <laughs> And I'll I'll go a little bit here. Like, this is a heel who's doing this, right? I remember watching ECW, and they did an angle where Francine cut Perry Saturn's hair. And he does the, Mm. you know, he's a heel, but he does the ultimate babyface thing. He gets on the camera, and he takes out a razor. I don't care about my hair. And he shaves the rest of it off. Like, that's what you do. (laughs) So Victor and Perry had their roles completely confused. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> all right i i feel oh, like i've boy. talked about this too many times but we'll, we'll i'll talk about it again whatever but you lou you're gonna go first what was the greatest wwf non-televised match you've ever seen and what was the worst oh boy oh boy um because let's see i think of the wwf shows i've attended in the bay area mm, they were one was a tv taping one was a SmackDown taping, and then one was just a SmackDown house show. But I did see a few years ago when they came to San Jose, NXT. There were some hot matches on that. That was back when uh, Shinsuke Nakamura was on NXT. Samoa Joe had just come in. So uh, the main event was a tag team match. Nakamura and... Ty Dillinger, who is now Sean Spears in AEW. But that was back when Ty Dillinger, uh, I guess, got over fairly well as the perfect 10 in NXT. So they teamed up Dillinger and Nakamura against Samoa Joe and I want to say Robert Roode, Bobby Roode. So even if it wasn't all as hard hitting as you would expect, if like, if it was a if it was a matchup in New Japan or somewhere like ROH, it was just uh, you know well crafted and a lot of fun. So I would target that as the best non wrestling WWF match I saw. As far as worst, oh my god, <laughs> uh, a lot of big catalog <laughs> of those. I know, I know, and if I'm if I'm not including that barn burner between <laughs> Bulldog Bob Brown and Coco Samoa. I'm going to say, oh, good God. Boy, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I can't say there was anything anything that came out as a uh, a really stinker of, dis, of distinction that I can recall. All right. There, there's a lot of bad ones, especially in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. All right. I, I have seen some great WWF non-televised matches. In 82, I saw Bob Backlund against Bob Orton, which, I mean, it felt like a five-star match. And, and this is this is all mm. in Boston. Uh, I saw Ric Flair against uh, Bret Hart in a one-hour Ironman match at the beginning of, of 93 or the end of 92. I think it was January 93. That was an absolute five-star match. And we came in knowing that these guys had heat with each other. And I'm like, okay, you know, maybe it's not a good match. Well, it turned out to be, if this was televised, it would have been a, a match of the year candidate, if not match of the year. But I'm going to go number one 
Bob Backlund versus Ivan Koloff in the Boston Garden in August of 1983, I want to say. It mm. might have been July, but it was an unbelievable match. It went like 40 minutes, and what made it stand out from everything else was that after Bob pinned Ivan clean in the middle, the match got a standing ovation from, you know, 10, 12, whatever thousand people it was. I mean, they just, you know, everyone stood up and appreciated this wrestling match that they had just seen, even though this was back totally in the kayfabe era. So I'm going with that one mm. as, as number one, my best, because because of the crowd reaction. The worst, and his name keeps coming up, a year later, Bob Backlund versus Paul Orndorff in the Boston Garden. Uh, you would think mm. on paper this match would be okay. This was like April, May 1984, uh, but it was yeah. absolutely awful. It went to a 30-minute time limit draw, and the fans, the, the booing started before the bell even rung. And then when the bell rang, I mean, Bob just got booed out of the building. It was nuts, and it was almost like, wow. you know— it, Hulkamania was was the cool new thing that replaced Bob Backlund, and Bob just you know Bob just made it worse by you know wearing that singlet and getting that crew cut and having bad matches where he just won't get off the mat. And like I've said this yeah. about Bob before, the business was going in one direction and Bob was going in the other direction, and it didn't work. And this was I think this was this was his last appearance at the Boston Garden until like ninety three, I think. Yeah, I I was going to say that probably was very near the end of that run right before he uh, gave it a go in Pro Wrestling USA. Yeah, I have a match. Uh, it, it was Bob Backlund against Salvatore Belomo. It was his last mm. WWF match. It was at the Philadelphia Spectrum. And, you know, reactions on TV are always, you know, they don't do the live reaction justice. And you could hear people in Philly like just booing Bob Backlund loudly. And I think after this match, you know, he and Vince McMahon must have had their meeting where they decided to mutually part ways. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Sal Belomo, too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a, a babyface Bob Backlund versus Sal Belomo match. It was almost like they were booking Bob to bomb. But anyway. Yeah, no kidding. That's... My God, that's like the wallpaper paste of, <laughs> of of competitive matches. I would think. Yeah, and you know, you'd you'd have Hulk Hogan going out there, you know, throwing punches, throwing the rule book out the window, not caring. You know, I'm here to kick someone's ass, and and Bob just going out and doing his shtick. It 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 didn't it didn't add up. All right, Edward Whipke asks, what was the heat between Ric Flair and Rick Rude all about? Lou, do you have insight on this? Because I have a little bit. Okay, and I gotta say that's the first I've heard of it. So, uh, any insight uh, you would have, I'm happy to hear. All right. After he died, maybe even before he died, there was a lot of positive stories, shall we say, going that I started hearing through the internet about Rick Rude, which took me by surprise because I'm just being honest here. Okay, I'm not trying to disparage the man. But I'd been around Rick Rude. He was an asshole. Everyone thought Rick Rude was an asshole. Everyone that I've ever encountered who's encountered Rick Rude thought the guy was an asshole. Bobby Heenan wrote in one of his books about what an asshole Rick Rude was. I mean, I, I encountered him at the John Arezzi convention in 1991. 
And, you know, just a, I thought just a very, even by pro wrestling standards, just a really arrogant guy. Um, and, you know, you're around other guys who were around him and they're cool and Rick just wasn't. And my take on it always was that when Flair was in the WWF, Rick Rude was in WCW. And then Rick Flair came back. And I, I honestly think it was just a matter of personal jealousy. Rick Rude thought he was the new guy, and Ric Flair was this old man from yesterday, and, you know, Rude should be the top guy in his own eyes, and when Flair came back, that kind of went a little bit sideways. I know they did not get along, so my my <clears throat> only guess is that, A, it was, you know, a combination of professional jealousy, and once again, that Rick Rude had the reputation of being kind of a turd. That's it. Right, right. And yeah, and that makes me remember I've forgotten that it was Rick Rude who, yeah, went over Ric Flair for what was still the NWA title, but in rather short order, uh, became the WCW International World title. It was a Watts thing. And when Watts was gone, basically so was the idea. And to me, that angle never made any sense whatsoever. That we have this WCW world title, but wait, now we're bringing back the NWA title. It's like, just don't look backward, look forward. You're WCW now. Don't worry about that stuff anymore. Exactly. And the NWA tag titles were, you know, synonymous almost from day one with the WCW tag titles because they, you know, put them both almost immediately on Doc and Gordy. Mm -hmm. So it was like, why bother? It was, it was confusing. And I, I just don't think it brought anything to the table. I know we all have great nostalgia for the old NWA, and it's dead. It's dead, people. It's been dead for 25 years. you got to get over it. It's not coming back. I know technically it's still out there, but let's not pretend it was what it once was. I actually think that having this, you know, tr- having this NWA world champion that, you know, travels to different indie promotions. It's dumb. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's just not well, coming back. I don't, you say that now, but wait till the next episode of Shockwave. Let me tell you. <laughs> or Carneyland. <laughs> it might just persuade you otherwise. Uh, I remember they had the... the uh, I'm not even going to get into it, but I, I know a lot of it came from Dennis Carluzzo, and I love Dennis to death, and he came up with the idea of, you know, bringing it back and, you know, making it part of his promotion. This is like uh, when he came to the ring with, um, oh, who was it? The guy who looks like Freddie Mercury in UFC. Oh, yeah, Dan Thank Sebert. you. Why can't I come up with his name? Like, Dennis was trying to bring back the NWA title, and here Dennis is on pay-per-view and on WWF TV carrying around the NWA title. That's right. They tried that again in 98, and it was just as dead then as it is now. Anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, NWA North American champion Jeff Jarrett and the new Blackjacks and the new Midnight Express and the old Rock and Roll Express. (laughs) Oh, boy. That was, oh, that was a cluster. My head is shaking so hard I'm about to give myself a concussion. That was, that was awful. (laughs) All right. JM, if he had gotten the ESPN slot, could Bill Watts have won the wrestling war? What do you think, Lou? Hmm. Boy, that's a, that's a good what if. I think it's interesting because of the way that, by and large, Bill Watts approached pro wrestling as a athletic competition. 
I think that it could have really, really gelled well with ESPN at that point. Whereas, you know, the AWA, uh, it was what it was. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I think the primary reason might have been Sergeant Slaughter from what I had read. That is true. That they got on ESPN. But I think, yeah, I think at, at that point when... They started airing World Class and AWA. That was around when? 85? Uh, no. They, a, AWA was 85 and World Class, I want to say, was 88. Mm, well, I want to say at least maybe 86 or something because I remember seeing uh, the first World Class I saw on ESPN. It had the Von Erics, including the Fabulous Lance, against... On the heel team was Blackjack Mulligan, so that was that cup of coffee that he was back in Dallas. Right, I remember that. Uh, they did run old episodes, though. Oh, The Legends of, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, so you were watching it live on, in 86. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, when it was first okay. run, yeah. But uh, Mid-South, I mean, at that point, it was around late 85, Early 86 was when they uh, got out of the Irish McNeil Boys Club in Shreveport yes. and started doing arena taping in Oklahoma City and such. I think with the way that Watts programmed his TV and the really sort of nonstop action and the build in all the segments, I think it was good TV, period. And I think had he uh, really kept up the the sort of athletic competition part of it, I could see him making fairly big waves on ESPN. Lord knows that he certainly did in the the one quarter that Mid-South was on WTBS. It was the highest rated show on cable television I have read. Not wrestling show, not sports show, show. Right. <laughs> that could be a Watts false claim. Who cares? Who knows? But that's that's my understanding of it. I mean, it, here's the thing. I don't think Watts was going, going to win the wrestling war unless he, he got on TBS. We've talked about this before on the show. Mm -hmm. I also have mentioned this. ESPN in 1985, 1986 was not what it is today. I mean, if if yeah. I had seen, you know, into the future 25 years where ESPN, I mean, the Rose Bowls on ESPN, the, the you know, the National College Championship, uh, Major League, you know, I remember when Major League Baseball first signed to get on ESPN, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this, you know, this is going to be on this rinky-dink little network. This is like the end of 89. They announced that they were coming on in 1990. So ESPN, like I said, it was a, a small cable channel, but it had a following because, hey, it's sports. If you're you know, if it's 1985, you're not doing anything, turn on ESPN because at least you'll get to see a sport, right? I think the only way it could have worked, it couldn't have worked if they had given Watts what they gave the AWA because the, like, I never knew when that show was going to be on and it was constantly being moved around and preempted. Like, if I were Watts, I would have mm. had to sit down with them and say, look, you know, I want to work together, but one really important aspect of pro wrestling is continuity. So even if I have to be on, yeah. you know, a Saturday morning spot, a spot that no one else wants, we're all going to be better off. And, you know, what sport's playing at 11 o'clock on Saturday morning anyway? And that's a traditional slot for pro wrestling. So I think that's what they should have done. 
Uh, and if, if Watts, do I think he would have won the wrestling war? No, I don't. Do I think he would have stayed in the game a lot longer? That is a distinct possibility. Would he have become the number two instead of Crockett? That's also a possibility. True. And with a with a national audience now, we can have a pay per view. I mean, I'm doing a lot of several mm, steps mm-hmm. down the road here, but I'm also just trying to answer the question best I can. All right, Chris Berg, who I I have put a lot of thought into this question. Who did you think? would be a sure thing that ended up being a massive flop. Lou, do you have an opinion on this? Oh, boy. I'm trying to think about who was... Mm. I mean, in one way, you could say somebody like Bam Bam Bigelow... I could see that one. ...who... I don't think he was necessarily disappointing in the ring, but it was just he had sort of ping-pong so early in his career between Texas and Memphis and finally to the WWF. But that first run was not very long with uh, Humperdinck and then going into Crockett. So it was, had he stayed, I think, in one place and built up for, you know, stayed there for an extended period of time, I think it would have paid off bigger. So in, in that way, it was sort of a, a misfire. I don't know. I'm thinking personally, it was like watching pro wrestling this week during that time. You get TV and you'd see, I saw like Strangler Steve DeSalvo up in, was it Calgary or? Yeah, he was Steve DeSalvo in one territory. He was Steve Strong in, I want to say Montreal. Yes, he was. International. But he just, you know, the little I saw of him, he seemed like a top guy in either of those promotions. And then next thing I see, he pops up with little fanfare on the AWA as a protege of Wahoo McDaniel. So I see him come in as Billy Jack Strong with a headdress. And I'm thinking, the hell is this? Because it was like there was zero indication that the guy had any First Nations or, or, or Native heritage or anything in his appearance or background. So it was just rather odd. And, of course, like most people in the AWA around that time, he did not last yeah. long. So You want to do things like eat when you get your paycheck <laughs> from your job. Uh, that, that, you you exactly. brought up two good ones because Bam Bam Bigelow looked like he was going to be a superstar when he was in Memphis. And then he came to the WWF in 87, and I'm telling you, they blew it with him. They gave him the totally wrong gimmick, but wait, then he decides he's going to keep this totally wrong gimmick with the flame suit and all that. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. get him in the dirty t-shirt and, and the, the, the regular trunks like he had in Memphis, and, and you know, this is, is the most natural heel in the world, who, of course, is going eventually going to be a big-time babyface like he became... He wasn't really a big-time baby face, but he got to team with Lawler right. against uh, Idol and Rich. So like I said, I think first the WWF miscast him, and then he turned around and miscast himself. Yeah, and that's that's even discounting that mulligan from being a bald-headed, flame-tattooed yeah. Russian in world class. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, that, was, that was such 
a disaster, and I, I I have heard that it was kind of orchestrated by Larry Sharp, which I can I liked Larry a lot. Don't get me wrong, but I think I've you know I've heard about what his role was in that allegedly and whatever. Uh, <laughs> Steve DeSalvo, I I saw him in Calgary. My immediate reaction was. JCP should get this guy because he looked like he, I mean he had a great heel persona. It came across as so natural. No, he wasn't a great worker, but he was a charismatic dude who could do a good interview and he he looked the part. So two good calls on your part. I can't think of a wrestler that I thought would be a sure thing and became a massive flop. I can tell you someone I thought who was going to be a sure thing and ultimately was a flop, and that's Ken Shamrock. I thought, mm. I, I still think there's an alternative universe where he is up there, like mid late 90s, early 2000s, with The Rock, Austin, Triple H, uh, Mick Foley, etc. I thought he looked good. He Everyone knew he was a legit tough guy. He seemed to adapt very well and very quickly to pro wrestling. And what happened to him was a sh- was really a shame because I mean this is this has been certified they wanted to okay let me back up a little bit I <laughs> think this podcast is very fair when it comes to discussing everyone's got to get real emotional when Vince Russo's name comes up I think this podcast is really good looking at his strengths and looking at his weaknesses probably his biggest weakness was his obsession with incest angles, right? Oh, I mean, God. how many Holy of these do we have cleavage. to have? He, yeah. And he wanted to do an angle. Ryan Shamrock was in the WWF in the Divas division. I think there's a favorite of Ken. I don't know. And they wanted to do an angle <laughs> where he gets caught sleeping with Ryan Shamrock, which already, I mean, I would just say no to it out of general principle. Well, supposedly Ken, like, carefully let everyone know, look, I own a karate studios, MMA studios, a chain of them in Southern California. People won't bring their children to my studio if I'm running this angle. So we can, can we please do something else, right? And supposedly Russo and the other guy, Ferreira, if I'm getting his name right, I don't care. They, like, immediately wrote him off. It's like, you know, we're sending a message. If you don't do everything exactly the way we tell you, we're suddenly going to run out of ideas for you. And I get both sides of it. Like, you need the wrestlers to cooperate. We can't have every last detail of our angles in negotiation, Bret Hart. But you you, you can't ask him to do that. It, it's insane. Right. I know it was the Attitude Era. And I think Ken Shamrock was pretty notable because he had the crossover appeal from MMA. Mm-hmm. And it was like, treat the guy more like a legit athlete than one of their regular goofs, yeah. especially in, in the days of Russo, where it was just nonstop crash TV off the wall tomfoolery. <laughs> I mean, I I may have mentioned this. I, I watched an episode maybe three months ago from like 1999, and I just couldn't believe how over the top it was, and how I didn't realize how over the top it was when I was watching it in 1999. I just sat back and enjoyed it, but it, yeah, yeah. 
some some pretty interesting ideas were were hashed out there. Uh. Exactly. With the benefit of hindsight, you see how much hot garbage uh, was served up in the name of wrestling. Yes. <laughs> And like I said, I, I looked, I enjoyed it at the time. I'm not going to lie, but like like many things, it, it did not hold up. Not that it was supposed to. It was, you're was supposed to draw eyeballs on that particular night, and it did. All right, Michael Faulkner asks, "Do you believe that had Magnum TA become NWA World Champion, that a Tully Blanchard Magnum TA World Title program would have happened? And if so, would it have drawn?" Lou, your thoughts. I'm really conflicted in my thinking when I was mulling this over because because Tully Blanchard, this is a guy who, I want to say, even in the position he had during his running Crockett, he was still kind of underrated. I know that, you know, I remember at one point Jeff Baldrin called him, uh, thought of him as the junior varsity flair. <laughs> And, you know, you could kind of see that. And the thing is, he was entirely too good as a chicken shit heel. It was like he worked better in reverse gear, you know, than when he was on the offensive. So when you have somebody with an overwhelming heel strength like that, do you think the fans would consider him a credible challenger? for the big gold belt. And it's like, that's the thing. He was cunning. Uh, he was crafty. He was a constant thorn in the side of people like Dusty Rhodes and Magnum TA and Ron Garvin. And he, boy, he could play the crowd like a violin. And he was good. You know, I'm just having trouble picturing him solo, you know, above upper mid card yeah. and it's just and i'm trying to discount the you know the stature and size thing that gets cited so many times about tully blanchard but but it's an issue it is and it's like it's one thing to have a long-going issue over the u.s belt over the number two title and it could not have been booked or executed better you know starting from baby doll in cop drag handing the coins to Tully to, you know, getting a wood shiv in his eye in a cage match at Starcade 85. I mean, that was just really the perfect blow off. Could you have duplicated that if, you know, Magnum was the champion and Tully was chasing him? She was in cop drag while she was Dusty Rhodes property for 30 days. Oh, Another okay. little so that way. Was, oh, she escaped from Dusty long enough to do this. Yes, the, the old uh, old swayback horse uh, jumped the fence. I remember that. <laughs> that yeah. was a great segment. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> you get back here, Floyd. It was Gaga. Floyd. <laughs> Floyd. <laughs> oh, it was Gaga, but it was good. It Gaga. Was phenomenal. If, if, yeah, yeah. So it, it, having it as a very top program. I can't, I don't know, I can't really wrap my brain around that. I can't see it. I can't see 
this promotion. Uh, I mean, that I'll explain. I can't see them going into the Los Angeles Forum, the Boston Garden, the, the Meadowlands with Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard on top. I, I, would Magnum TA have been an effective NWA champion? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm inclined to say no. I'm open to the idea that maybe it could be yes. In that case, I could see... You know, Magnum versus Ric Flair on a big show as the main event with Magnum defending. I could see him against Nikita Koloff. You know, mm-hmm. and even then, like I'm, I'm, you know, to me, if you're going to go into and they they planned on doing this, the the Los Angeles Forum or you know whatever we're ta- whatever major arena we're talking about, I, you know, I could see going in with like you know Dusty and. Dusty and Nikita, or, you know, if Dusty's champion, Flair, Nikita, Flair, Dusty, I just don't see it with Magnum, but if I did see it with Magnum, he would have to have a much stronger heel opponent, so ultimately, I don't see it working. Uh, United States title, it did work fantastic, but now we're moving up the ladder, and I just, I don't see it, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, same here. Nick Minecci asks, what territory TV show would you most like to see added to the network? What do you got, Lou? Okay. And we're going to go under the pretense that there's enough existing footage out there, which obviously disqualifies about 75% of my wish list in, in the real world. But if we're talking a territory that still has good quality footage and it's all concentrated under one undisputed rights holder, WMC Television, Saturday Morning, Jerry Jarrett Championship Wrestling, the 90-minute live show. Because even if it's full of gaga, depending on if Lawler is booking at the time or not, it was a spontaneous powder keg on any given morning. And it played out. And you never knew what was going to happen. And from what I've heard, Jared and Lawler could book on the fly. And you know how they, Vince would say, anything can happen in the World Wrestling Federation. Everything friggin' <laughs> happened in the CWA or USWA starting in 78 and going to the mid-90s. And, of course, people use the pejorative Tennessee Wrestling for it, but you gotta say, even if it was out of the box and you couldn't buy it sometimes, there was enough there that they threw at the wall that it stuck and it was memorable. Yes. So I would love to see, you know, Lance Russell and Dave Brown as ringmasters any given day, uh, you know, and then uh, other choices, St. Louis wrestling at the chase. I know that Larry Matisic had a certain amount of programs that they were now carried on the Fight Network in Canada, and, of course, he sold them retail. But if they had a more complete, you know, timeline from, it doesn't even have to be 59, but maybe early to mid-60s or 69, when Joe Garagiola uh, moved on and Larry Matisic came in, up till, you know, the bitter end when it was race Ganya O'Connor. Right driving the bus and driving it off a cliff <laughs> just from a historical perspective, seeing the top stars from everywhere cycle in and out 
and be on TV, that would be awesome. And then also being a homer here for uh, my man, the stud, Southeastern Continental, so Knoxville, Pensacola, Dothan, any of that stuff, just so you could see how a smallish promotion would, you know, do gangbusters business and just to see what that TV product was. I mean, I used to get Southeast Wrestling on cable. I was actually, it was, uh, it was another show run by Lars Anderson. I can't remember the name of it right now. Was it, right, was it like World League yeah, Wrestling that was it. or Thank something? Thank you. And for about six weeks, they ran Southeast footage, and I couldn't believe how good it was. It was it was just the best wrestling I'd ever seen in my life to that point. Not that I'd seen a lot. I saw mostly WWF. But I'm glad you said the WMC Memphis because there there is, is such a big difference between the 90-minute show that ran in Memphis and the 60-minute show that you would get from, like, the Evansville feed or the Nashville feed because, you know, they would cut out all the stuff that specifically – was aimed at the Mid-South Coliseum, which was the best part of the show. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, the most combustible stuff, angles and uh, confrontations, came to set up set up the show that would be happening in two days at the Mid-South Coliseum. Yeah, yeah. and they would put out, like, and I know they did this on purpose, they would put out this, like, kind of lackluster-looking card, and then there would be this explosion on television and they'd come out and say, okay, we're changing the card Monday night to, you know, satisfy this angle. It was like, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. My offering would be, and Steve Kern once told me that he has all of this in pristine condition, whether or not that's true, I have no idea. This was like 25 years ago, uh, championship wrestling from Florida. I, that was, I mean, Mid-South is already on the network. If we, if we wanted to get earlier Mid-South, I'd take that. But since that's already on the network, I think that was the best promotion. Florida was a, a close number two, in my opinion. Championship Wrestling from Florida was simply awesome. They had main event matches on TV, not mm-hmm. every week, but they had them often enough. And it, everything just made so much sense. And there were surprises around the corner. And it was just so logical and so well booked. And it came across as a real sport. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm glad... To have seen uh, the the little that's dribbled out from WWE of CWF, but yeah, I I I do wish they had a a bigger collection to share with us. Yeah, I I hear you, and then you know, hopefully someday that'll be released. And I'm always saying this, but like, so that the people who would really enjoy it, and you know, while they're still alive. Well, would be able to yeah. see this, you know? I mean, it, it's be. I'm 55, and a lot of it's before my time. Yep, exactly. I liken it to Warner Brothers has sort of a, a, a smaller, sort of almost bespoke business uh, where they put out kind of limited edition stuff from their archives and stuff that collectors really wanted to see. If WWE had something similar for, like, streaming or VOD, or something they could almost do on demand to Blu-ray or whatever, you know, I think potentially it could make a killing. I don't know what it would cost to set it up, but I got to think there's, you know, enough of an interest 
to uh, to at least break even on it. Uh, especially if you, if you put it on a streaming service. I mean, you know, I don't know how much it costs to convert it, but it can't be that much. This is intern work we're talking about here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, God, I, if I was offered the job, I'd, I'd be really tempted to move to Connecticut <laughs> just to luxuriate in those archives. Yeah, well, Stanford's expensive anyway, and it's cold. Uh, uh, oh, I mean, okay. I've heard, you know, many people who were not happy having to make that move. But anyway, we're going to do two more questions. And I apologize for anyone who f- submitted a question that we just didn't get to. I mean, we're doing a really long show here, and I'm, I'm getting near the point where I just got to go. Uh, Joe Finnerty. John, in 1982, World Class started airing here in Boston, head-to-head against WWF Championship Wrestling on Saturdays at 11 a.m. Did you expect them to run regular shows up here? No, I didn't, because that's just not how it went. I was really happy when they did. Uh, they ran one show that I went to, obviously, in Lynn, and then... By the time I didn't go to the second show because going to Lynn was such a pain in the ass. And by the time they came back in '86, I mean, world class was dead. But anyway, do you remember how they did the ratings? The Boston Globe included wrestling with the other sports ratings on Tuesday, but I can't remember how close it was. I gotta get. I'll tell you what. I mean, my family subscribed to the Boston Globe when I was growing up, and I read it. And I I honestly don't remember seeing the ratings, but my understanding what has been over the years. That A, it did extremely well in the ratings. It dwarfed what the, I don't want to say dwarfed, but it beat the WWF almost right away. They, they ran at the same time. Like, this was crazy. There was no, it was like there was no other time world class could just be on at 10 a.m. and they would have increased their audience or noon. So we could have seen both shows in the days before VCRs. Um, but, you know, I don't remember seeing that. I heard they did well. I heard Vince was not happy that in one of his major markets that someone was running a show directly against his, but at the end of the day, it did not hurt the crowds at the Boston Garden. Um, the Garden was almost always either sold out or near sold out in during that era. But what might have hurt, and this dawned on me recently, I've been watching some 1984 WWF, and they were talking, and the footage was from Channel 56, and they were talking about a show that was going to happen in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and Roddy Piper was going to be there, and Sergeant Slaughter was going to be there. And I was like, man, if I knew about this show, I would have gone, absolutely would have gone, but I was probably watching World Class and thus not being aware of the show in Portsmouth. So there we have that. And the final one, Lou, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. This is from Greg DeFore. He watched mm-hmm. an old Boston Garden show from 1986 and came across a Psycho Capone versus Lanny Poffo match. Who the heck was this guy? Gorilla completely crapped all (laughs) over him. Never saw him again. The only thing I found out was he was a Kowalski trainee. I mean, Lou, do you have anything to add on this? Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, it it sounds like he he was one step away from getting the Mighty Joe Thunder treatment. (laughs) (laughs) Had they put him on TV. But uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a funny name, and I'm sorry I missed that match. Okay, this match it's available on the network. It aired on June second, nineteen eighty six, which was a historic day because it's the day I turned twenty one, and yet I still recorded this show. I remember certain matches from it. 
I didn't remember this match, but Greg, I went back and watched it, okay? Just for you, just for the show. (laughs) This guy was bad, and we are talking perhaps indeed, as they say, I mean, just as as bad as can possibly be. He was he was. You could tell Lanny was was visibly annoyed by this guy. He wasn't big enough to be in the WWF. He wasn't you know experienced. He he didn't certainly didn't have the the wrestling ability. He was a sub for Barrio, and apparently you know I've heard about him as a Kowalski trainee. I don't think I've ever seen him wrestle, but I know he was part of that 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 roster back then probably just he was at the garden and they needed a body and instead of having someone else do double duty which in hindsight may have been a better idea uh, they just put him out there for this kind of throwaway match against Lanny Poffel Lanny like I said did not look happy by the time we're in the middle of the match he didn't look happy and Lanny kind of landed on him awkwardly a couple of times with a somersault and it looked like Capone screwed up what was supposed to be the original finish, and Lanny's just like, okay, I'll lay a couple of more of these into you if you don't want to stay down. So thank you for Oof. turning me on to that, Greg. I really <laughs> appreciate it, because it was, it was a disaster worth seeing. Wow. Was was Pete Doherty on another match on I, that I card? don't remember. Because <laughs> it's like, even, you know, it really, they couldn't, they couldn't drag the Duke out. Just to to sub for uh, I mean, we have you know what we have local guys. I mean, guys who did the TV tapings. It was, it was probably just I'm guessing a last minute thing. And hey, we have this guy who's trained by Kowalski, and who really cares? Well, guess what? They're they're recording it, and it's on the network. And now we're <laughs> bringing it to everyone's attention once again. It's stick to wrestling, Lou. This has been an excellent episode. Thank you for coming on and and going. Not only are you going to produce this show, you've been a, a wonderful guest. Well, thank you. I, I always appreciate the privilege. It's loads of fun hearing you and many of the really, really knowledgeable fans who are on here on a rotating basis. So I'm just glad I got up to the plate yeah, this it, time. It's, it's been about time. So I want to th- wish everyone a happy 2021. Hopefully, it'll be a little bit better than 2020, and hopefully, Trump won't have the military pull his coup, and we'll be getting rid of him. And that's pretty much it. Happy 2021, everyone. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Wear a mask, stay safe, and so long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.